and with anyone who wants to turn up and ask some questions. And we're able to do this thanks to the brilliant support we get from the LSE and the generosity of our donors. Uh, if you think doing these kinds of things is important, you can donate to help us continue to do this work. Uh, you can find a link to our Just Giving page on our website where you'll also find a series of essays by contemporary philosophers on all sorts of interesting ideas, as well as podcasts from all of our previous events, and they go back many, many years, so there's an awful lot of stuff to find there. Just a couple of housekeeping matters. This is being recorded for a podcast as well, so if you ask a question, be aware that your voice will be on the podcast too. And do wait for the roving mic to find you so that everyone in the room, as well as people on the podcast, can hear your questions. Um, if you have a mobile phone, if you could turn off the volume, that would be much appreciated, but you don't have to turn off your phone completely. In fact, you're more than welcome to tweet along. We have our very own hashtag, L-S-E-F-E-P, um, and I might see you on the Twitter sphere there as well. Anyway, enough from me. Let me hand you over to our fantastic panel for tonight and thanks again for coming. Well, good evening everyone and welcome to this forum event on celebrity. My name is Peter Dennis and I teach philosophy uh, here in the department at LSE. Uh, as some of you may know we often try to do topical events uh, at the forum and I suppose celebrity is always topical. As we'll find out uh, in a moment, celebrity is not a new uh, topic or not a new fascination uh, and one of the questions we're going to be trying to answer during the course of the evening is what explains our fascination with celebrity and were we always so fascinated? Uh, We'll also be looking at some of the rights and responsibilities uh, that celebrities have. Do celebrities have particular responsibility, for example, to play a leading role in setting moral standards or a role in political life? Um, and we're pleased to have a celebrated panel. Uh, we have, uh, to my left, uh, Edith Hall, who is Professor of Classics at King's College London. Next to her is Simon Blackburn, who's Fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge, and he's also Professor of Philosophy at the New College of the Humanities. And on the far left is Oliver Driesens, who's Lecturer in Sociology of Media and Culture at the University uh, of Cambridge. So let's turn to this first question, and we'll turn to you, Simon, to start us off. What explains our fascination with celebrity? Have we always been fascinated with celebrity? Um, well, I think there's always been um, the possibility of a cult surrounding a person. Um, usually, I, one likes to believe in um, previous ages because the person had done something well, rather remarkable <laughs> or was believed to have done something rather remarkable. Um, so there would be cults surrounding Roman emperors, there would be cults surrounding um, major figures. I think Edith can speak better about them than I can. Um, by the time you get to the Middle Ages, for example, um, I think of saints as celebrities. The saint was celebrated for something. Uh, it may have been you know, that they walked around after their head had been cut off. That's St. Denis of Paris. Um, which is a pretty remarkable feat and would certainly make you a celebrity. Unfortunately, you'd be a bit 
be a bit late for you to profit from it, but um, um, but other saints, of course, were were celebrated for more mundane things like um, curing the sick and so on, which uh, one can well readily imagine that they actually did. Um, and a celebrity then was as you know big a magnification glass as I think it is now. Um, so if you had a good saint on your hands, that was money in the bank. You had a cathedral, you had pilgrimages, you had uh, a huge um, uh, income for your monastery or your um, your foundation. Um, more so probably than you know if you if you happen to en- entertain Gwyneth Paltrow or Tom Cruise or somebody. So so I think the idea of a a kind of religious or magical cult surrounding particular figures is not new. Of course, our technology is different, and the way you become celebrated uh, can be different. Um, I don't think any preceding age had um, a rough equivalent of the Kardashians, for example. Um, and thank you know, one, one, one wishes one lived in older times. Um, but um, uh, you, you, you usually had to be celebrated for something that you'd done or some property you were um, reasonably believed to have had. Um, military men became celebrated. Napoleon was a huge celebrity, um, even uh, in a world in which his deeds were not particularly admired. Um, so you could say Napoleon wasn't just uh, famous but infamous. Uh, nevertheless, um, there was something about his personality that magnetized people, that attracted people. And so, uh, so he was hu- a huge hit uh, throughout the 19th century. Um, I don't know that there's quite the same kind of celebrity attaching to major political or military figures these days, but one, one might be able to think of examples. Um, there's certainly um, cases, I think, of um, a, a sort of parallel to the magical thinking, which I think often accompanies celebrity. Um, so a thought experiment is this. Suppose I've got a Fender Stratocaster guitar hanging on my wall um, from the 1960s. What's it worth? <coughs> It's probably worth $500. They're quite nice instruments. Um, suppose it's the guitar that Jimi Hendrix played at his last concert. What's it worth now? Thousands, possibly millions, certainly tens of thousands. It's worth a 100 times as much as it would be if he hadn't touched it. Or Princess Diana's underpants, or... Elvis's wig, whatever it might be, anything that's been touched by a celebrity uh, gets this sort of magical aura surrounding it. And the mere fact that it was involved in um, their life, their touch, their, uh, their, their um, possession uh, would be enough to, 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 as it were, make it magic, to make it something that you look at with veneration, you don't touch, you put it in a museum, you put it behind glass. Um, and I think that kind of transfer of adoration 
is very interesting. It's obviously there in the cult of the saints. Uh, you know, the holy thorn, Joseph of Arimathea's toenail, whatever it might be. Um, those things are, as I said, in the Middle Ages worth a lot of money. Um, and we're, we're, we're th- enthralled to the same kind of psychological dynamics. And that's what really interests me as a philosopher about celebrity mm-hmm. is the, the psychology whereby this sort of aura, this magical magnetism starts to, uh, starts to exert a, a field of force on people. Um, as I say, I don't think it's new. Uh, it has different manifestations, it has different causes, it has different modes of propagation. Um, you know, there's no Twitter and there's no Facebook and nothing like that in uh, the times I've been talking about. Uh, but I think the same psychological dynamic is, is always operating. What I'd be really interested to hear from, from Edith and from people who know more about the history and the sociology than I do is um, whether they can fill that out, whether they can say more about the different manifestations of celebrity at different (coughs) historical periods and arising from different causes. Um, uh, Musicians, I think, have always been celebrated. Orpheus was celebrated. Um, I think poets have always been celebrated. Uh, Philosophers, almost never. Um, So that's very sad. Um, But... It's just a cross I have to bear. <laughs> Anyhow, with that, I'll pass it on to somebody else. Um, yeah, shall I go? Okay. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's very interesting and, and important that uh, Simon points out this historical continuity. Speak closer to the mic. Yeah, sorry. Um, um, yeah, I think it's very good and important that uh, Simon points out these um, similarities and the continuity if you think about celebrity and, for example, religion. So several authors have also pointed out the similarities between worship and fandom or idolation. Um, so as a cultural system, it's, it's good to um, compare them. And this brings me to um, an argument by a um, sociologist from the Netherlands, Dick Pels, who argued that um, celebrity is today's opium of the masses. So... Of course, um, starting from Marx, arguing that religion is um, the opium of the masses. So then if you look at what Marx was actually pointing at, um, the first aspect was that um, this religion helps people um, to forget about their suffering. So it's an instant pleasure. It's, it brings immediate gratification. Um, but the second aspect, which is also important if you think about celebrity, is that for Marx, religion also... Um, took away the energy or the oppression, the, the revolt among the people to um, protest their dire um, labor circumstances, their, the difficulties in their everyday life. So if you think about celebrity, is this fascination also something that maybe distracts us from the real issues at stake? Um, some, certainly something that resonates with people who are quite negative um, or maybe have kind of elitist views on this super, superficial uh, celebrity culture. So then it's, um, it's interesting to think, okay, indeed several studies have shown and um, argued that this celebrity gossip, um, celebrity news, might be an oxymoron, um, brings people this instant gratification. Um, they can gossip, they can share these stories with their friends, etc. But then if you look at the second aspect of um, 
this issue, um, whether it prevents people from uh, protesting, from perhaps being politically active. Um, here, some of the arguments are um, rather mixed. So there are many people who argue celebrity is not this merely superficial um, source of entertainment. Um, we also have to look at the moral debates that they can start among people. So if, um, let's say, Madonna adopts a kid from Malawi, it raises all kinds of discussion on adoption, on inequality between celebrities and ordinary people. Why can a celebrity just do this, and why can ordinary people not do this? Um, but on the other hand, um, there are also many studies that show that the political relevance, the way or the extent to which um, these celebrity stories, for example, on the adoption by Madonna, really raise political awareness or activate people is very limited. Okay. Um, and then if I add to the, or go back to the, to the question about this fascination for um, celebrity, there are, of course, other aspects um, that we have to take into account. So one way that people try to explain our fascination for celebrities is point, by pointing out that they are, on the one hand, ordinary people, just like us, but on the other hand, they are also extraordinary. They are ordinary because they could be our neighbors. They are just, uh, or like some people are described like the girl next door. They, are very, they look very familiar. We can easily identify with them, build these so-called parasocial relationships with them. Um, but on the other hand, they have access to all kinds of circuits, to places where most of us, I assume, the ordinary people don't really have um, access to. So that's, that's another thing. And then um, maybe the final thing I could add here is that um, this fascination with celebrity and why we think they are <coughs> extraordinary is um, that it can be seen as part of this myth of the mediated center. So the way the media function, the way we construct our realities, is often mediated through mass media and increasingly, of course, um, social media. So they, they shape this idea, this image, that what is happening in the media is important. So, and then it's very easy to think of celebrity, or maybe some of you who have been on television, once you have, people offer say, I, I saw you on television, or you've been mentioned in the newspaper, as if it's a big thing. So there's this symbolic value, the symbolic power of media that attaches something special to just being in the media. So I think that's also an important aspect when we try to explain how celebrity works, how our fascination is fabricated, um, that we have to take in, into account. I do think that uh, there's quite a sort of psychoanalytical thing going on, though. I, I think that um, I understand what you're saying when you don't think it's so important, the sort of social bonding function. But actually, I think it's incredibly important where we don't even know the other people in our street anymore. I think the difference for me, because I study very traditional societies and very people who lived in very small towns very often where everybody did know each other, is so different from a society where none of us has friends in common, mm. where we're endlessly in environments where we don't have a single relative, a single friend that we can actually talk about. And I know certainly from my, just my practical day-to-day -day life that there are all kinds of people ranging from one of my, my a, a son-in-law <laughs> to my cleaning lady, where the fact that I read the celebrity mags 
um, or with the son-in-law, it's actually about celebrity footballers. Uh, it tends to be more about film stars and, and so on with my cleaning lady. But these are incredibly important functions. That there's somebody we can talk about and test our own moral values against to see where we do agree about Madonna or not, or whether, you know, Terry went too far having an affair and a super injunction or whatever. These are actually crucial because we don't have anyone else in common, which we would have in a non-alienated pre-industrial community. I think, it, I think it's really, really important. It takes on a slightly parental thing, like all little children get together and talk about daddy or mummy because they kind of know it, or the head teacher in the school. There's, there's a somebody up one echelon, yes, a bit like God. So I think that is actually very important. It has some, some very positive aspects that I know the only time I read celeb mags, and I do, is when I go to the hairdresser and I jolly well get through all of them. The second point I want to make, which is one that I don't hear often enough, and it comes into my head because I, I'm a specialist in Greek tragedy, the social structure of which is you've got the Athenian democracy, right, the ordinary citizens of Athens, go to the theatre to watch people like Oedipus, who are royalty, right, the Toffs, suffer terribly. Right, they're really, really rich. This is what I call the schadenfreude function of celebrity. It is incredibly gratifying to me that Madonna hasn't got a happy private life with a husband like I have because I'm the same age as her and she's got a lot more money. But I've got the husband and I cannot wait. I'm going to be really honest here to see most of the celebrities' marriages bust up. I love it. <laughs> I love it. And I think most of us do. Um, and, and that is exactly what happened in Greek tragedy, was that you made up for the fact that they have got, as you say, access to quite extraordinary privileges once you get over a certain kind of minimum income. I mean, you know, the minimum being, you know, trust fund that gives you a million a year. Yes, exactly. Once you never, ever have to worry about all the things the little people have to worry about, you have all these privileges, fine. Does that guarantee you happiness? Oh, no, it doesn't. And I actually scan the newspapers for what I really like is plastic surgery disasters. <laughs> I really love those. You can get whole sheets of them where women are, and men, but they're trying to defy age. You know, I just have to get wrinkled because I can't afford plastic surgery. And then somebody goes along and they come out with these ridiculous lips and they can't be photographed for months or something. Just love it. <laughs> and I think it's a really, really important social function. It helps to mediate envy. I don't come over very nice, do I? <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering how that fits with Simon's assertion that celebrity is not new. So if I'm not talking about fame, I'm talking about celebrity. Right. Yeah. I'm talking about Big Brother House. Yeah. So if celebrities for the Greeks were tragic heroes, did they also have celebrities that were actually sort of real people? Well, that's difficult because um, these are mythical and fictional characters. Um, you know, Oedipus didn't actually ever exist as far as we know. There were tyrants of Thebes. I mean, there were genuine articles who were tyrants of Thebes. I doubt if any of them was ever called Oedipus. So there's a point at which historical general types get into fame as mythical types, which is another thing. But yes, they certainly did. Um, actually not so much. It's, it comes with literacy and a certain kind of monumental art. And, and, and you can really trace it to about the 6th century BC. Certain kinds of things can happen with texts, with uh, uh, people taking poems all over the Mediterranean, which have the fame in them. And you get certain classes. It's particularly athletes, Olympic victors, become incredibly famous and have statues all over the place with mem memorials on poems they fought. They, they buy a poem 
instead of buying a marketing man to do Twitter all the time about you, they, they buy Pindar. And we've actually got, Pindar wrote the poems of people who'd won in the Olympics and, and, and the other athletics competition. You literally bought it by the yard. So there's a guy who's from a little quite poor island. He's like from Rhodes. He, goes, he, only, he only gets one stanza, right? Because he can only afford like 10 lines of Pindar saying, and then in the great days of the Olympic thing did, you know, Alpheus spin past all the other victors, right? And this becomes known all over the Greek world. But then Hieron of Syracuse, who's the Donald Trump of antiquity, I mean, really vulgar, nouveau businessman who got to be tyrant of Sicily, right? He gets one that's got about 400 lines. So he gets this really mega poem. You just pay, pay for it. You pay for what you get. Athletes and actors are the two really big uh, stars in ancient Greece. Julius Caesar really outraged everybody by being the first ever Roman political figure to put his face on a coin in his lifetime. Only just... 44 BC, he then got it. <laughs> but Because that horrified all the Republican sentiments. But, you know, the, people were trying different ways and it eventually leaked into politics as well as, as, as culture. But you were regarded as somewhat hubristic if you wanted to put your face on a coin or something like that, if you, if you really wanted to be that famous. There were loads and loads and loads of celebrities. The ones we know about became famous and that's my distinction between celebrity and fame. Celebrity is in the present tense. There are many, many people. I do not believe people will be considered Gwyneth Paltrow famous in 200 years' time. No. I just don't. No. Unless they happen to be decadent <laughs> crackle food addicts or something. You know, <laughs> but I don't think anyone else will think that she's famous. She is, however, a really mega celebrity now. Mm. And that's my distinction, is that one transcends time. Um, I'll shut up and talk too much. Mm. Would others accept that distinction between celebrity and fame? Oh, I think it's a very good distinction, yes. That, um, I think you, you can be famous or infamous for something enduring, something yeah. really good or something bad, yeah. um, whereas a celebrity can bubble out. I mean, you know, a familiar metaphor is the bubble, and the thing about bubbles is they're ephemeral, they don't last. They, they can blow up, sure, but then they can crap, you know, just disappear. And I think celebrity is much, you yeah. know, that's the right metaphor for celebrity. Whereas fame has something enduring about it. And you think if, uh, if somebody's done sufficient things to become famous, then, um, you know, in, in a sense they go into the history books. And, uh, mm. Yeah, I'm not sure if the only dimension is the temporal to distinguish between fame and celebrity. So often... They would distinguish between heroes, stars who are famous, and then we have celebrities who are well-known for being well-known. That's one of the typical definitions. Um, then we can also um, ask, is maybe a talent, an achievement of these so-called celebrities not being able to draw our eyeballs, to draw attention by the media? Maybe that's their talent. So maybe if you think of fame as something that lasts for centuries or that has this really long-term um, characteristic, then maybe that's a too narrow definition. Um, so in my view, fame is just one type of celebrity. So I think of celebrity as kind of overarching concept for different forms of um, celebrity, fame, uh, hero, whatever. It's interesting that fame has this kind of immoral counterpart that, Simon, you mentioned infamy, where celebrity no, doesn't really have a counterpart in that 
in that way. It's a celebrity Notoriety. sort of a Notoriety? notorious as opposed yeah. to a celebrity. Also, Kenneth uh, Williams yeah. used to say infamy, infamy, infamy. They've all got it infamy. <laughs> yeah, notori- not notoriety right, okay. is a sort of bad mm. egg, isn't it? Criminals who are turn into celebrities. Cray brothers, you know. And, and the West family. and the, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's turn to the question of how celebrity has changed uh, in history. We've been talking about some of the similarities between uh, celebrity now and celebrity in the past, particularly celebrity uh, in ancient Greece. Um, Edith, I wonder if you could start us off on this. Has celebrity changed through the ages, and perhaps has technology played a role in that sort of thinking, particularly recently? Mm. Well, I think you can map very precisely um, on, on, on the great uh, revolutions in, in technology through, through humankind. You, you can see how every time there's a transformation, the mode of what I call ideological production, mm. um, the way that ideology, ideas are, are disseminated, the actual technology of that transforms every time fame and celebrity. So 70,000 BC, there's some sort of cognitive revolution <laughs> produced, you know, Homo sapiens is standing upright and gets language. You cannot have celebrity, I assume, pre-linguistically. I think it would be very difficult to, in fact, the word fame, which is in Greek, it's from fermi, in Latin, it's pharma. These are from a very old Indo-European root that actually means utter or speak. Right, that someone's spoken of. That that is the root meaning of fame. So that's seventy thousand BC. All right. Then you know what happens? Literacy transforms everything. Certainly in, in the Greek world, literacy, which isn't just little pictures of how many bushels of corn you've got, but something you can record poems with, which celebrate the great deeds of men. Eighth century BC, Iliad, Odyssey. Everybody in the Iliad actually says to each other things like, what we're doing today will go down and be spoken about in generations to come because we're very famous. Hector and Helen actually say that to each other. They actually say, oh, we're doing the Clea Andre, which means the famous talked about things of, of humans, right? They actually say that. We're in this poem. So literacy of any kind makes a huge, huge step forward. That then leads to monumental art, statues, inscriptions, you know, memorialising people. The Greeks were much more in touch with this idea of fame as immortality. Most famously, uh, it's in Plato's Symposium. And I insisted on bringing a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc tonight because we can't have a philosophical symposium without replaying Plato, clearly. But in the symposium, very famously, Socrates says that some people try to get over the mortality of humans by actually having children, so you replicate your DNA, as we would put it, those who don't do that give birth to what he says much more important, which is ideas. And that's where the midwife of the ideas comes in. So you produce ideas, you produce books, and that is immortality. So that's very, very important. But then we move on, really, we get the um, printing press changes everything again. I'm no expert on the Renaissance. I'm no expert on Gutenberg and early print culture. But the ability to replicate thousands of copies of a book with your name on must completely, with pictures in as well, you know, it, right from the very earliest printed books, they're very big on engraving pictures of a king or pictures of somebody. That transforms everything. 
then we just you just move forward through to the industrial revolution where everybody leaves the country they come to the city it becomes much more important to have um, you know royalty and so on in control I think even bigger watershed for fame than that is photography and interestingly the word celebrity as we use it either as an adjective so you say a celebrity singer or as a noun just a celebrity who is a singer starts absolutely, and I checked this in the OED because it was my hunch, absolutely starts in around 1840. Guess what else was invented in 1840? Photography. Right? That there's something about the photographed image as opposed to, if you looked at the old illustrated London newses when they were still doing all the engravings, there's something about the immediacy of photography. That meant, for example, the Crimean War in the 1850s was the first war ever to be recorded on a daily basis, wired, you know, wired photographs that some of the generals in the Crimean War became celebrities in their own time in a completely different way. Then, of course, we come up to the um, actual moving images and recording of sound, and <laughs> things start going off. In the 20th century, the star is invented as a metaphor, not till the 20th century, the, the movie star. What we've got now... <laughs> with social media has taken it to levels unimaginable before and I don't think any of us sort of philosophical types have yet come to grips with it to be perfectly honest with exactly what those ramifications are um, in, in any respect they have transformed it's already transformed politics you know you can get to be president of the US because you've been on telly I mean it has transformed politics so I'm just very interested in the, this technological revolution and what's the next technological revolution going to be? I don't even know. People are saying it's those um, robots, isn't it? It's no, sorry. What's the word for that in philosophy when people talk about artificial intelligence? Yeah, yeah. AI. AI. Once yeah. you've got celebrity robots, <laughs> yeah. I mean that, or I think we a celebrity do. robot filming having sex with a a Another human. One. <laughs> I mean, we've got to try and anticipate, but it will change it. It will change it. You see what I mean? Well, this yes. might be a good point to bring in the sociologist, actually, who said that, you know, philosophical types <laughs> have trouble with social media. <laughs> we but do, this yeah. is well, it's just so huge, isn't it? Uh, so, Oliver, talk to us yeah. about social media and how that's changed. I know a famous celebrity. robotic uh, Terminator, but apart from that, I'm, I don't know that many. <laughs> <laughs> What, well, anyway, the Terminator? Yeah. I would be big. Terminator. Sorry? That Austrian guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Schwarzenegger. You know him? No, no, but he's a, he's a robot. He's a celebrity. Robot. He, he is a robot. He's a robot. Yeah. He's the governor of California, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's some confusion. <laughs> only in the film. The Terminator is a yeah, robot. He is a robot. Is he? And Arnold Schwarzenegger is a celebrity. A Robocop. Okay. And Schwarzenegger <laughs> plays the robot. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Got that clear now. I'll get to social media. Um, yeah, maybe one part is... Uh, one point to start here is that we have to be careful also with this technological determinism. So, indeed, these changes in media changes in technology are really important and have changed the nature, the shape of uh, celebrity. But we also have to look at a broader picture, I think, and the, the development of, let's say, consumer culture and how this ties in with the celebrity system, um, the commodification of, of people. Um, so, um, and in that sense, if I then focus on Social media and, and developments in media, looking broader than social media, also reality TV, one of the arguments that is often used here is that 
um, these media um, produce what a so-called democratization of celebrity. Now everyone can be a, a celebrity. You start your own YouTube channel, you get your Twitter account, your Instagram account, Snapchat, um, whatever, and you can present, produce yourself as a celebrity. Um, to some extent, this might be true for those people who are really talented, who are also willing uh, to do this. But at the same time, you also have to look at some limitations, I think. And one is, if you think about reality TV, uh, the continued exploitation of these people. So, okay, they have their maybe literally 15 minutes of fame or six episodes of fame, um, but then they have to sign these very bad contracts. All revenues go to the media industries, the companies. Um, and then when the new season starts, they are thrown away and we have a new batch of uh, wannabe celebrities. So th I think that's uh, one um, important um, point here. Um, and then um, another issue is that maybe thinking about the social media and developments and media and technologies helps us to see um, celebrity only as maybe the top of the pyramid, um, where we can now see these forms of self-presentation, self-branding, bleeding into many sectors in society, in many social fields. Um, we can think of yeah, politics, as you mentioned before, but also the Pope. So we have celebrity CEOs. Um, we have all these fields. Maybe some of you are academic celebrities. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, so, but in all these different fields, we can see that um, the way that people present themselves as something that is seen as valuable, as a source of recognition of their peers, but also of the wider public, maybe to also as a way to um, connect with their shareholders, is something that is today really widespread for, for celebrity CEOs. Or like if you look at the startup culture, to, to get venture capital, it's not just about the idea for the company, it's also about who you are, what, what values do you represent, um, how do you, are you different, what kind of business culture are you implementing? And then the social media, Instagram and others, Facebook, are, of course, really important for these people. Um, and, yeah, maybe also as ordinary people, um, last Saturday, or this Saturday, I was at a conference where someone was uh, giving a presentation based on interviews with her students. And there, for many of these students, it became increasingly important to have this amount, hundreds of followers on Twitter, hundreds of followers on Facebook, which would be included in their applications for a job. Yeah and often asked by many employers. It was an American uh, colleague, I have to add this maybe, but still we can see that this visibility, how popular you are, how well known you are, um, how much influence, what's your cloud score, etc. that this becomes also valuable for employers, but also in other areas. Um, what's a cloud score? So it's a, it's a score that uh, measures your impact on, uh, online, for example, based on the retweets, the likes, you receive the number of followers, uh, etc. I don't know the exact uh, computation here, but uh, these are some of the indicators. Okay. Um, and yeah, the same for me, for example, when I was uh, actually here at the LSE as a fellow, once I got the advice that maybe, maybe you should work on your like, public image a bit more, maybe you need to blog a bit more, maybe you need to do these kind of things. So also for young academics, it's um, something that's increasingly important. There are still ways to resist it, but 
It is something that is expected. And then, of course, you have this competition. Maybe I'm not really into these kind of things. I am on Twitter, but not too actively. Um, but then when you are in a competition for the next job, and this is perceived as something that is important, well, maybe you might start considering uh, being a bit more visible, being a bit more uh, present and developing some self-branding, some public um, persona. Gosh. This is not advice um, for you, by the way. <laughs> Simon, I, I take it you haven't been self-branding and uh, checking uh, your cloud uh, score. <laughs> I, I blog not, neither do I tweet. <laughs> um, and I, I've not heard of a cloud score before tonight. Oh, <laughs> um, so, no, I'm afraid I'm, uh, I'm not the person to talk about uh, modern celebrity. I, uh, I have... Uh, um, I, I was brought up in a world in which modesty Absolutely. was a virtue. Sorry. Yes, no, no, no. no, no. <laughs> I have to say, it's my particular generation, so I'm in my 50s, so when I started out as an academic, any form of mm, yeah. public press, That's right. <laughs> communication Dangerous. with ordinary people yeah. uh, would stop you getting a job. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I was often accused of being a vulgar yeah, vulgar popularizer yeah, and not really having a brain because I could actually put complicated ideas yeah. in a fairly simple way, which I regard as a sign of high intelligence, but that was regarded as, you know, blah, 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 blah. Mm. I was, didn't get a job at Harvard, I was told, because I was too like an actress. Mm. What's that mean? Too like an actress. Like you, can com- <laughs> you can communicate. You can communicate. You know, you can communicate your idea. Therefore, you could not be... That was the absolute position, yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. philosophy classics, yeah. um, <laughs> until about five years ago, and then everybody started talking about impact, yeah. mm-hmm. and suddenly, if you were somebody who went on the radio, or, you know, mm, that was good, mm. everywhere, so your salary goes up if you have impact, that's why I'm here, yeah. I don't, <laughs> they're not paying me, <laughs> not paying me, it a lot of money. Yeah, exactly. no, they're not paying me, <laughs> but paying. I tell Kings, I did a forum, Mm. And I see it's part of my portfolio of what I now call cloud mm. score or something. Mm. So you put all that together. And, I'll and be the, checking that tonight. No, the, cloud the, table, score. the tables have completely turned. <laughs> except I actually don't think they have in the real halls of academic power. I don't, I, th- I suspect the places like the British Academy, the real yeah. old establishment that I call the yeah. paleo snobs. Yeah. As opposed to the nouveau snobs, right? <laughs> the paleo snobs still think it's a bit worrying if you can explain the research naff. project to the bus driver. Yeah, it's a bit naff. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wrote a book. Even though the bus driver's paying for it with his taxes, mm. you shouldn't yeah. be able to explain it to him because that's a bad sign. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it was exactly the same philosophy. I, I um you know, I had a conventional academic career, wrote papers which nobody read. Exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, well, about and then about I, four people. Yeah, about four people, yes. And then, um, then I started to enjoy going to literary festivals yeah. and things. And I wrote a, a book which was well-received and, you know, uh, talked to the general public or talked to students, would-be students. And I found that absolutely liberating, very enjoyable. But in the halls of academe, it was not a plus. It was um, it wasn't a minus because I never cared about it much. But um, I mean, I never cared what my peers thought about me. I just cared about a the subject and b making money. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's not a way to make money. But, um, 
but it was uh, it was very looked down upon. It was very dangerous for yeah. philosopher to be intelligible. Yeah. Mm. Heidegger said that it's fatal for philosophy to be intelligible. And he should know. And he, he was good at it. Das nicht, nicht it. <laughs> yes, I still it. don't know what that means. What yes. does das nicht, nicht it mean? And nothing noths it was translated at. It's not a very good translation. I wouldn't quite give him research funding. <laughs> Oliver, did you want to get in? We're going to open uh, yeah, maybe a question. small yeah. point that I could add here is that another change that has been ascribed to these, to the rise of these social media and other technologies that it enables these celebrities to bypass the traditional gatekeepers of the media. They don't, have, they don't need any journalists anymore. No. So they no, can no. communicate directly mm. uh, through their Twitter or Facebook pages with these fans. But of course, yeah, it gives this illusion of control. But at the same time, when there is negative news or when there is news that they don't really want to communicate, of course, then it goes viral mm. um, in a second. So it's a bit... <laughs> Double-edged um, sword. Well, this is this Schadenfreude kicking in. I mean, everybody loves it when somebody falls off the pedestal. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're going to open up for some audience questions uh, now. So, if you have a question, do raise your hand, and if you can wait for the mic uh, to come to you, uh, that way you'll be on the podcast. Uh, there's a gentleman uh, in the second front row, and then I've seen a gentleman in a. Oh, hello, hi. Um, yeah. Two quick, quick ones. First of all, I would like to know the opinion of, uh, of, of panel about Anjan Lojoing be, being the visiting professor at LSC. <laughs> is this anything new? Has there been a precedence of this? And the second question is more general. Why, uh, you already alluded to, but why do we enjoy seeing celebrities fall? <laughs> okay, let's um, take the question uh, up there as well. Yep. Hi, uh, um it just made me think of the story of Herostratus and what you're saying. He was a man in ancient Greece. He burnt down the temple of Artemis. And um, when asked why he did it, he said he did it so he'd be written about and he'd be remembered. And um, his punishment was that all record of him would be destroyed. Um, obviously, it didn't work because I know about him. But um, <laughs> And... Um, yeah, I don't know. If like, I feel like if Herostratus was alive today, he'd probably be, you know, doing something disgusting on YouTube or whatever. Yeah, right. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. If, like almost this, I almost feel like in in the modern day, we think that there's it was it's a modern phenomenon of this difference between sort of the aspiration to be famous or doing something good and just being famous for fame. But I think I don't know. I, f- I feel stories like that show that there's always been a kind of crossover between just fame for fame's sake and just wanting to be known and remembered almost like what um oliver was saying about socrates and and being immortalized in in literature i suppose slightly your thoughts on that thank you and is there another question and then we'll come back to all of them there's a lady in the front row thank you um i'll fight you for the magazines at the hairdressers um, because that's the only place I think a lot of women only look at those magazines at the hairdresser and you wonder who is this person and why do they have such a nice bathroom and do I care um, <laughs> but is it I can't help wondering if it's a sign of, of age or just taste that I personally find it absolutely revolting when somebody dies everybody's jumping in with celebrity tweets I don't get it it's where's there's something. What is that? 
Thank you. Uh, and there's a question actually just behind you, if you pass the microphone back just one. Um, I found the, the discussion very interesting. I mean, I'm rather intrigued at the difference, if there is one, between the celebrity of the person and the, and the celebrity as, as expressed in the image of the person. I was rather struck by this. I don't know, the other day, reading an obituary in Tim Piggott Smith, who said he really didn't like the images of him, you know, being the tough soldier, whatever it was, and the jewel and the crown. And also, if you look back, someone like Elgar, I mean, he absolutely hated being remembered for pomp and circumstance and the sort of jingoistic mm. aspect We shouldn't of have it. written it then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and want, you know, much for his second symphony, all that for which, you know, no one ever listened to. Mm. Uh, I just want, I'm just a little bit confused. I mean, are they both aspects of the celebrity? Okay. Yeah, and we'll take one final question. Gosh, you're uh, testing yeah. our memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll try to this recap. This poor gentleman has got to be forgotten. <laughs> Thank you. As an American who lives daily with the tweets of Donald Trump, I've, I've, one of the things I'd like people to comment on here is that, in fact, uh, Trump with 30 million followers on Twitter, uh, most of his voters are not on Twitter. Wow. They simply react to media coverage of his tweets. Mm. Uh, and so when we talk about Twitter being a way to bypass media, actually I think a key element of the Trump phenomenon is that his ability to get the media to pay attention to his tweets. Yeah. Uh, um, so it, it's, it, it seems somewhat as a circular way of, of trying to understand the mm. ununderstandable. So. Thank you. We'd better get the panel's uh, uh, responses on these. So just to sort of recap, there was a question, I suppose, is directly to you, uh, Edith. Why do you enjoy it when celebrities fall and make mistakes? Envy. Uh, the second question was about um, whether fame for fame's sake is new or whether we can think of examples uh, in ancient times as well. The third question was about a kind of distaste, maybe, that we sometimes feel... Uh, with some coverage of celebrities or celebrity misfortune. There was a question about the distinction between a celebrity image and person themselves. And the final question was on Trump and Twitter. So feel free to take any or some combination of the above. Well, I'd better just clear up the, the what about memory and, and, and somebody who commits an act of arson in antiquity because they want to be famous. I, I, I think there are people like that. My, my, my knowledge of, 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 of the prison population is slight, but I have gone to prisons to, to try to teach reading and things like that. Um, and there are a lot of people who do say, well, at least I did something big. I've done something big. I've done something, which is exactly, exactly what Hector says before his battle with Achilles. I did something. I am someone, right? I made some kind of mark. And there's a sort of terror about non be not not being remembered, which has got deeply bound up with, you know, existential terror of death. Mm. And one of the biggest punishments in antiquity precisely was it, the Latin, the, the, the rhetorical term is damnatio memoriae, where you are, we will erase all references to you from all future, you know, so nobody will ever remember you. I mean, we've seen that with, with, with photographs of sort of... Um, the, the leadership of the Russian Revolution and Trotsky mm. attempts to delete, you know, just delete the fact that you were ever there, as if you could give a toss once you're dead. But actually, people do give a toss mm. about their 
reputation afterwards. Mm. And I, I, I won't go on any more, but actually Aristotle, who I think an awful lot of these debates mm. goes back to, because he's the first person who thoroughly divides private from public life, mm. you know, as these two separate spheres, um, and whether or not you've got different rights and responsibilities in the household from in your wider community of friends and the state, right? He theorizes all of that. But he actually not only regards um, as one of the social goods that most people aspire to, fame, he actually does, good reputation in the city, having a good name for a man, not for a woman. Um, he, he absolutely does that. And he also discusses at great length whether it's possible for someone who's dead to be called happy or not. And that's all about how he's spoken of after... He actually talks about that at, at length that modern philosophers can't really get to grips with well, very we, often. Can, we, can you call a dead the, man happy? It's on the syllabus. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. Is yeah. it? <laughs> Sorry. Well, and it's I'm a very not sure interesting we can question. Yes. That mm. Is somebody who's lived a happy life but all of whose descendants live a miserable life mm. or his household's wiped out after his death, can you call him a happy man? Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the few hopes for the planet is that because people have children and they care about their yeah. children's yeah. futures, that you can get things like accords on ecology, global warming yeah. and ecology and resources and so yeah. on. Um, I think if one generation just stopped, bang, and then another generation sprang up, bang, yeah. we wouldn't care. Yeah. At least our caring would be so attenuated, so thin, yeah. that we, we certainly wouldn't bother to save for them and so on. But people do bother to save because they, they share a world with their children and they care about them. So that's, that's one of the few sort of fingers crossed hopes for the future after we've been so glum. Mm. Um, could I say a word about the... Um, uh, you asked the question about um, why do we enjoy it when they fall off their pedestal. <laughs> um, it's, I wonder if it's got the same kind of psychological dynamic as the fact that we kill our gods. Um, Jesus had to die on the cross. He wouldn't have been nearly such a, a figure if he hadn't fallen. That's a big fall. Um, and I wonder whether it's something that brings divinity back to earth in a way that we can then find ourselves in it. I'm not religious at all, but I'm just speculating oh. about the religious frame of mind here, or the the, the social dynamic which gives the, this kind of story, the story of the god that dies, um, such a powerful resonance, you know, across many cultures. It's, it's not unique to Christianity. Um, I think that there's, well, there's a, there's a story to be told there. I'm not sure what story it is. I would actually make the distinction. I'm only. If I really pe think people have done something to deserve it, I don't get the same. It's about no. talent-free zones, making an awful lot of money and making and a fool. Yeah. A, a fool. I, I, I should really, I think, have said that. And, and again, that's in Aristotle. Mm. There's a word in, in ancient Greek and in modern Greek mm. which we really should have in English, which mm. is thonos. Mm. Thonos means envy with a grudge, <laughs> right? Yeah. It means envy that takes... Mm. has schadenfreude, takes pleasure. And Aristotle says that's actually a healthy reaction to people with ill-gotten gains. It's a perfectly legitimate. Yeah. Yeah? If you don't feel 
that sort of destructive envy with a grudge towards somebody who you believe does not in any sense deserve the goods they've accumulated. It's actually an unhealthy psyche that doesn't feel angry about it. It actually says that. So if I feel someone has managed to fool everybody into giving them an ultra-privileged lifestyle, right, and my real bête noire, which I haven't gone on about, but it, it is celebrities who have made all their money by courting the press and the media, who then complain when they're photographed topless. Yeah. I cannot stand it. I'm perfectly happy for them to complain about their children and have, have injunctions put in places. But when Andrew Marr has an affair, yeah. Andrew mm-hmm. Marr has an affair and then gets a super injunction out because it might hurt his children's feelings to hear that he's had an affair. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, don't have the affair. You know, <laughs> I just can't stand that. I just can't stand it. It's interesting, isn't it, that um, Schadenfreude it, it needs to be proportionate. You yes. Know? I mean, I'd, I'd so enjoy it if I read that, um, <laughs> you know, Philip Green's yacht had hit a rock and, <laughs> and capsized. I wouldn't you really. Sound like Nanki Poo. I wouldn't really. I wouldn't make re- the punishment fit the crime. <laughs> yeah, make the punishment fit. But I would. I wouldn't enjoy it if I'd learned he'd been run over by a bus no, and lost a leg. You're quite I mean, right. It's. Um, it's got to be something in the in the in. Yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah. Levels it up rather than scales yes, of justice. Scales of justice. Yes, exactly. Oliver, maybe also something that to show is that not also these people who are seen as very successful also don't have the perfect lives, that they also have their right. uh, difficulties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, because time is quite limited, I, I assume we can address some of the other questions. And uh, one of the questions, uh, all the questions, but one of the questions I really found interesting was also the question on Angelina Jolie. So <laughs> the first question, maybe you strategically skip that one. I'm not sure any of it. It has to be said she was invited to be on the panel. <laughs> Oh, yeah, she couldn't attend, she unfortunately. Couldn't. Oh. Oh, am, I, am I the substitute for Angelina? <laughs> nobody are doing very nobody, well. Nobody was the substitute. <laughs> oh, my word. We Brad, have, Brad. We have a four-person panel instead of five, I'm afraid. <laughs> oh. um, no, I love to be Angelina's understudy. That's as fine. I don't want to be Brad Pitt's understudy. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, sorry, I'm, I'm the serious one on the panel. But uh, uh, so one of the questions here was um, whether there are any historical uh, precedents. So there are many, in fact. Spike Lee, for example, he had been teaching at New York University as a director on the film course. Uh, there are many examples also of painters, um, artists who have been teaching at universities. And so here to news this story a little bit, we have to add that, of course, Angelina Jolie is professor in practice. So... I'm not sure she comes really as the celebrity, but more as uh, someone who has worked and who has considerable expertise yeah. uh, for UN um, mm. and issues that she has been concentrating on for several years already. Mm. The question is, how did she get uh, this position at the UN? So, of course, I don't want to face uh, or erase celebrity completely here. It is important, and that's something... If you look beyond this example of Angelina Jolie, something that is really interesting, something that in fact inspired me to do my to write my PhD on celebrity, to look at um, how and why so many of these people, what I called migrate from the original fields, sports, entertainment, the media, to all these other fields, um, such as politics, but also economy. So you can and you can see many of these movements in between. 
um, all these fields. So what do they bring? What, why is their visibility, their celebrity so valuable to these different spheres? But then we also have to look at the changes within these specific spheres. So maybe if we apply this again to the example of the LSE, maybe for the LSE, this is also welcome uh, publicity because they just started this new master. So it could be good to raise the profile, raise and, and, and get more publicity for this exact new master by bringing in not only Angelina Jolie, but also William Hague and other people with certain fame, but also with um, relevant expertise. Um, then, yeah, is it new that people um, try to be famous just by playing this famous person? So being well-known for being well-known. Um, I don't think so. Also, in some historical studies on celebrity, we can find several examples of people we would call today celebrities. So again, this temporal dimension, I find it uh, a bit difficult. Maybe another issue here is uh, maybe we wouldn't, we wouldn't know of these famous people if they had not practiced some of these practices of celebrity, if they had not performed as a celebrity, if they didn't make their name. You can be very good in a field, and that's what also many young people today think. Maybe you can be the best in a field, but if nobody knows about it, well, good luck with your career or whatever. Um, you want to achieve. So it, I think it has been present um, always in, in, in the construction of fame, uh, stardom, whatever uh, we call it. Mm. Um, and then maybe the last one. Um, yeah, did you want to comment on the Trump and Twitter? That's sort of your... Oh, yeah. Well, think it's a very good point. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, probably it just points to one of the failures of the media in reporting on um, the elections and one of the, the difficulties here is that he was clearly setting the agenda. By the time they could critique his positions, his new provocations, there was already a new one. So the, the pace that was set using the social media, again avoiding or bypassing these traditional gatekeepers, made the elections and, and the coverage uh, very different. Mm. I suppose they had to react. The presidential candidate tweets, or the president has tweeted, the media can't not cover it. Mm. They're already being accused of um, yeah. setting a different agenda yeah. and not covering yeah. him. Yeah. 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 Though in the French presidential election, they made kind of exception by not publishing what uh, leaks, mm. um, what information had um, raised. So they, made it, some... they made it illegal to retweet them, yeah. didn't they? Yeah. So, in that sense, you could also say maybe there's also a responsibility of regulation or of policy mm. in determining the boundaries of these um, election campaigns and the media coverage on those. I wonder if we can move on to sort of final question of the evening, which is uh, to do with celebrities' rights and responsibilities. And it's something we've already touched on. Uh, Edith, you were talking about privacy uh, of celebrities and how much privacy uh, they, can, they can expect. But there's also this question of whether celebrities have certain responsibility in society to be role models, for example, whether they have a particular social function. Uh, Oliver, I wonder if you could kick us off on that? Um, I'll try. Um, well, maybe a starting point here is that celebrities, so if you think of celebrity, I think of it as kind of high degree of visibility, so through these recurrent representations of them in the news, in the media. Um, often this mere visibility, this raised visibility is uh, conflated or confused with wealth, um, certain expertise, um, influence, 
on their followers, maybe also political power. And I think this um, helps us understanding why they are often seen as role models, why we have all these expectations of celebrities, why we think they have certain responsibilities. But um, for my PhD, for example, I interviewed um, Belgian celebrities. Also, one of the questions then, because I was studying their political and social involvement, one of the questions was, okay, and do you think you are a role model? And many of them, most of them actually, no, 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 I don't want to be a role model. Um, in, in no way. It just, it doesn't mean that I'm on the television, that it implies that I should be setting uh, some example for young people, for old people. Um, although, at the same time, most of them also accepted that they do function or that they are seen as role models. But still, I think we should be careful about these functionalist interpretations of um, celebrity. Um, at the same time, um, we also have to think of these negative role models. So, um, are role models only positive role models? So maybe when Britney Spears did certain things, maybe that's a dated example, that's Kim Kardashian. Miley Cyrus. Yeah, Miley Cyrus, Kim Kardashian. They can also function as negative role models. So um, show behaviors that young people think, oh, no, this is something I should not do. Um, and then um, another aspect. Was I going to say? Can uh, I just pull yeah, you up on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I thought, you know, if... Um, Kim Kardashian becomes famous for showing her bottom or something. Um, don't a lot of, I don't think young people look at it and say, that's something I shouldn't do, do they? I thought they looked at it and said, oh, that's a, that's a good way to become famous, and you get bottoms all over Instagram <laughs> or whatever. Isn't, they should join isn't Instagram. That, isn't that how it works? I, I, I don't, uh, don't Instagram, but... Um, yeah. uh, I, I mean, do young people ever see a celebrity doing something and say, oh, that's something I shouldn't do? Yeah, in some cases, but I, I think, indeed, there they are some cases where they do follow and imitate uh, these celebrities, but um, the point I wanted to add is that we also have to look beyond this um, direct influence of these exact behaviors. So uh -huh. an interesting way of thinking about celebrity and their potential influence is uh, what David Marshall called that they function as kind of pedagogic models. Uh, they learn us, or they teach us, how we should present ourselves online. Um, so they give us some kind of cultural <coughs> formats that we then follow and implement as academics, um, as journalists, um, as other people, in the way we craft our public uh, persona and brand ourselves in a professional way, but also often in our private ways, how we communicate with our followers, um, how we communicate with our friends on Facebook, etc. So many of these um, ways of posing in a picture, the kinds of information that people tend to share, is sometimes influenced by these um, celebrities. We used to call this, I mean, in, in, in my discipline, it's just, it's called exemplarity. It's moral um, exemplar. I think, say, a fictional character like Achilles is held up as an example of good manhood for young men. It's how the ideology works that you see this heroic figure and you try to emulate him and be brave or, or, or whatever the yeah. exemplarity is. But um, I, I, I actually, I think I could get quite tough on this because fiction, people muddle fiction up so much with that. If you have made your money by playing 
a certain kind of hero figure, superhero, who saves people and rescues children and gets, <coughs> you get paid a lot of money, then people expect you to be like that. This is one of the huge things. And I do think you are actually letting people down if you then resort to very bad behaviour. There, there was a very unpleasant incident at, at, at the last uh, Olympics in, in Rio with an American athlete mm. who went on the rob in, in the garage or something. Yeah, do, do you remember all that? Yes, swimmer. but he was... You know, I do think he had... Because people were looking up to him, if he had any interest in community, because young men were looking up to him, then he did have a responsibility not to lie, cheat, and mm. cast racial slurs against the Brazilian working class, right? Mm. I, I, I really, really do. Um, yeah. And, and that, that, that depends on all sorts of factors. I can quite see why actors should say, if just because I'm playing a, a, a moral hero in a particular Dickens, that doesn't mean that I can't have lots of affairs or something. I mean, I can see why they say that to themselves, but I think they also... I think people who make money out of being famous don't tend to give it enough thought what the responsibilities are that go with that. Um, I, I think there is a severe problem. Um, and I would be, you know... I had very recently... Uh, I nearly got a criminal record. No, seriously. I sat in a first-class train compartment with a second-class ticket. Oh, no! When there were no seats... And I, anyway, I was... How could you be so Do you know what? There's, I ended up being threatened with a 12-week prison sentence. It's a long story. But you know what was keeping me awake at night? And that was that my mm, students would know I'd got a criminal record. And every time I would have to explain this was about daft railway stuff. I did actually what all celebrities do. I found a £1,000 and paid a lawyer to get me off. Right, I had the money just about to do that, but because I had refused to pay the on the spot penalty and grovel because I didn't think I had done anything wrong, uh, that, that they, they were going to give me an actual criminal record, but I was mortified, I didn't want to be someone with a criminal record. Would you accept a distinction between somebody who is an actor and plays a character who's heroic kind of on screen saying, well, look, you know, I'm not making, I'm making money out of being an actor, but I'm not making my money out of being a role model as a hero. And somebody who does present themselves in real life as a hero, somebody to aspire to, and they make their money out of that good reputation. Well, I can see the distinction in terms of, you know, the sort of advanced court of morality uh, in terms of your actual, right now, in the society we're in, responsibility. No, no, I, I can't. I really can't. And I do thoroughly admire celebrities who have uh, used their <clears throat> fame to do good deeds. I, I think it's fantastic. And, and, you know, one of my personal heroines is, is Ellen DeGeneres. Um, she has done an unbelievable amount for gay people globally. I mean, in incredible because of her visibility and her good cheer. You know, this good cheer, she makes people happy. In terms of just defusing people's prejudices, I, I, I really, really believe that. Um, and and, and that's, 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 you have a choice if you have massive celebrity it, and you have made a lot of money out of it, how to use that soft power. That's right. I think the important thing is that, that exactly that yeah. they've got a choice yeah. and they've got yeah. they've got power, huge power, and with power comes responsibility. Yeah. 
Um, but uh, I, I can I can well see too why a lot of celebrities or near celebrities would say I don't want to be a role model because after all they want to go and have their affairs and travel first class. I travel first class. I'm <laughs> <laughs> a second class ticket. <laughs> Oliver, would you agree with that? That you know celebrities do have a role model, moral responsibility, can't complain if their privacy is infringed, this kind of... I sense that maybe you're some distance away from that position. Uh, yeah, I don't entirely agree. Um, you do or you don't? I don't. No. Um, <coughs> to a certain extent, you could say if um, a young sportswoman or man uh, is becoming increasingly successful, well, they shouldn't be called drunk driving and all these kind of things. But at the same time, yeah, it's also people in a way. Um, so I'm not sure to what extent you can really expect them to be the ideal son or daughter uh, where you can expect more from them than from other people. It would be a difference if someone has been campaigning on a certain issue as an endorser or a politician who's working on family uh, politics, for example, and then has mistress or does all kind of things with our, which are incongruent with these issues, yeah, then there's a problem. But not, I wouldn't generalize it for all celebrities. Well, that, that's right. I mean, the, hypocrisy is always unpleasant. <laughs> but, but if you say that, you know, the 1970s Rolling Stones, part of their celebrity was <laughs> they behave so badly, you know, they can't go into a hotel without burning it down or whatever they did. So they um, lived up to the expectations yeah. of that particular model of heroism. Yes, that, well, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So not, they had a duty, maybe, to yeah. trash the hotel. But, but, <laughs> but I think it's part of the reason. Plato banned, and you know much more about this than I do, but uh, Plato banned the artists. Was the artists crack <coughs> up exploits like, or persona like, persona like Achilles, you know, the man of Thumos, yes. the man of... Bad you know, exemplars. He's a exactly. really, said really bad, bad example. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the artists, or we might say the entertainment executives, are at fault for presenting those as glamorous and fantastical yeah. and so on. That was a major, yeah. Um, yeah, major reason for banishing the artists. Yeah. Exactly, yes. Well, let's throw it open to questions uh, again. I'm sure there'll be lots of points of disagreement and uh, debate uh, on this topic particularly. Uh, there's a lady uh, right in the middle uh, in white. Let's start with you. Thanks. Hey, thank you. So um, I'm a historian of science, and I'm, I'm writing a history of ancient DNA research, so um, the science and technology behind Jurassic Park. And my argument is that ancient DNA research can be characterized as a celebrity science. So my question for you, and you could help me with my work if you can answer it, um, how do we conceptualize celebrity on the group level? So I'm not just talking about the scientists who work in and around ancient DNA, but there's something about ancient DNA as a subject of science that pulls the media in, but also interacts with the media as well. So how can we think about celebrity in contemporary culture or even historically um, outside of the individual, or can it exist without it? And while you've got the microphone, can you tell us what ancient DNA is? Oh, right. So it's um, extracting DNA from fossils. So think of Neanderthals or dinosaurs or mammoths or anything like that. Yeah. Great, thank you. Let's take a next question and take a couple in succession. Yeah, there's a gentleman in the corner here. Uh, yeah, I'm interested in this idea of um, imaginary celebrity, like um, Harry Potter is a kind of an imaginary hero. Um, and um, 
I'm also interested as somebody picked up on the other side of Homer, and I think there is something Homeric about uh, celebrities. That's your kind of reward uh, in a way, or your imaginary reward for making it through life. And I wonder to what extent the media or the, or the government are guilty of kind of creating this, um, um, looking at Plato, creating this kind of ideal form and, and tricking us into believing that the celebrity represents that ideal form, uh, imagining there's a kind of the, the ideal interaction, the ideal conversation, when obviously that doesn't exist. Thank you. Yeah, there's a gentleman here. <clears throat> Just staying with that for a moment, I'm, I'm curious as to if you have any ideas on uh, the people who are who, who started um, world-shattering uh, movements, let's say spiritual leaders, people uh, like uh, well, Socrates, Christ, Confucius, the Buddha, uh, Muhammad, how much of that their legacy is down to the ideas as opposed to perhaps the charisma that, and the magnetism they showed, shall we say, celebrity status at the time? Because they were all humble, weren't they? All these people. They were never self-promoting. Okay, great. Well, that gives us something to be getting on with, I think. Let's start there. I think, shall I start with yes, the, the, um, the ancient DNA question? Um, I, it's a great mistake to think of science as if it's sort of a, a self-propelled, sort of slightly magical um, thing. It's, uh, it's not. It's done by people, and it's done by people who need money and who need... Uh, institutional support and often quite a lot of it and um, uh, and I, I think it's obviously great if you're in a science like investigating fossil DNA which might sound like a, almost literally as dry as dust um, and then the media suddenly finds it very glamorous and very exciting and somehow you know it's going to be uh, Jurassic Park uh, going to be there on the, on the front page or at least the middle pages of the uh, the better kind of newspaper. Um, so, uh, I think. I mean, I think it's a very interesting question for historians of science: the extent to which that kind of exposure and kind of popularity or celebrity, if you like, um, diverts and distorts perhaps uh, scientific. Research. I mean, every, every, anybody who's read something like Gil, uh, Ben Gildaker's books about, um, you know, the, the distortions that money um, brings into the scientific endeavor, into the publication of results, into the, um, you know, trawling your bottom drawer for things which might sound significant so you can get, you know, yet more funding. Um, you know, I think it's, it's a very important aspect of science. We often think of science in a kind of sort of semi-religious frame of mind as something that stands over and above human dynamics, politics, greed, um, the search for celebrity, the search for fame. But of course, it doesn't, and it's very important to remember that. I mean, I'm a, I worship science. You know, I think the great scientists were the saints of our civilization. But I think it's very, very important to recognize that it's a it's an enterprise that's conducted by human beings who have their own ambitions, their own faults, their own flaws, their own failings. And, uh, and often they're abetted by the media. I mean, uh, I recently, I only recently started to subscribe to The Times, um, mainly because I found I could do the Guardian crossword and I needed another one by lunchtime. 
Um, and I was shocked at the science reporting in the Times. It's nearly all drivel. It's obvious. Oh yes, it's nearly all PR output from particularly Stanford. They seem to have a thing about Stanford. If you're a psychologist in Stanford, and you say that you know tests have discovered that women are twice as intelligent as men, which I well believe, um, you know the Times will publish it. It's extraordinary. Sorry, if we could follow up on that. Go ahead. Yeah, um, yeah, very good um, question, and it, I think it invites us to think of celebrity not as something that's really attached to only individuals, but maybe think of it as a system of representation that goes beyond uh, only individuals. We could think of animals as celebrities, maybe Knut the ice bear or uh, some elephant, <laughs> and or uh, CERN. So. CERN. I mean, anybody works at CERN. Yeah, and then yeah. and then the question is, what about institutions and and certain research uh, centres? Can they have celebrity? Can can that be considered as a kind of celebrity? So, uh, to a certain extent, yes, I think. But at the same time, we have to be careful about um, not confusing celebrity with maybe recognition, um, which could follow from celebrity gained from media representations, uh, but it can also backfire. So there are uh, I know of several cases of um, academics who gained, um, let's call it media celebrity, uh, by being on talk shows um, every so often. Uh, but then when, for example, this one uh, academic ran to be the head of the university in Leuven in Belgium, his media celebrity backfired. The students voted against him. They said, no, you're not a serious academic. We cannot see you as the head of university. You're... You're an, you're an entertainer. You're a celebrity. So in some ways, I think it can be very useful for academics to have some celebrity or for an institution to gain some kind of celebrity through media representations or by <coughs> maintaining blogs and Twitter accounts, um, etc. But there, there are some potential um, dangers or limitations um, there. And then maybe another aspect to go beyond this mere media attention is that we also have to acknowledge um, traditional mechanisms of fame and um, celebrity. So then one, for your example, would be uh, the Nobel Prize. So you have all these old mechanisms used to um, attach more celebrity or recognition to certain research groups, but also um, individuals. Or another one is knighting. So then you can have an OBE and all these other titles to also attach more um, celebrity recognition uh, to these um, institutions. Um, I think, yeah, that's... Just on the point of groups or institutions sort of being connected with celebrity, would you say that a group can actually be a celebrity or sort of have celebrity? It seems like there's something intrinsically individual about a celebrity. Yeah. Sort of, it's a particular person that may stand as an exemplar, as a general sort of icon or something, mm. but it's an individual you can... You can collect their bones in a in a vault, and you know you can buy the the guitar that they touched. And yeah. will the concept stretch that far to a group? Um, maybe to more to an institution than than really a, a group of people. Although maybe the A team or another group could also be considered as kind of celebrity. Although then people would refer to these individuals within the team. Um, and so I think that depends on our definition of celebrity. How how far can we really stretch it for the, to explain this kind of um, examples. 
What about the question on spiritual leaders, charismatic individuals? Could they be counted as kind of celebrities? Some you mentioned saints. Would yeah. you put them in the same bag? Oh, yes, very much so, I think. I mean, as, as a saint, you know, the people who, who become known as saints um, are people who've achieved a certain celebrity. Um, and uh, rightly or wrongly, I mean, maybe they could fly, but usually they couldn't, but they were reputed to be able to. Mm. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the magic I was talking about, the, the way in which <sighs> their aura is supposed to transmit to the, you know, the things that were associated with them and so forth. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a very interesting study there, a, a word which has gone out of use, and it's, I'll, I'll say why, actually. It uh, resonates with, uh, with Edith's point about the, the 1830s, um, was the, um, the idea of a deodan. A deodand in canon law and in early American and English law uh, was an object that had been involved in a death, uh, an inanimate oh, yeah. thing, um, and it was then forfeit <laughs> to the state or to the church originally in canon law. Um, and this, this was generally true, you know, and there's, it makes sense, you know, if this is the dagger that. <laughs> Somebody used to kill my mother. I don't want to carve a Sunday joint with it. it it's no longer, as it were, a, a, a profane item. It's a sacred item in the sense of um, reserved to a kind of uh, separate place. And um, the, uh, the reason the status got um, uh, finally rejected, it finally went out of uh, legal um, uh, statute or, or, or common law um, was because the inanimate objects which started to become involved in deaths were no longer things like daggers or bricks that fell on you. They were things like railway engines. Mm -hmm. And so the, in the 1830s and 40s, the railway companies lobbied for the repeal mm -hmm. of, that, um, uh, uh, of that status because a railway engine could be involved in death, but it was also a very, very expensive item of equipment, and uh, you don't want to be bankrupted. Well, actually, in ancient Greece, we have cases of um, objects being put on trial that have accidentally yes. killed people. Mm -hmm. yeah, actually, exactly, yeah. things, yeah. you know, statues that have accidentally yeah. fallen on people's head, they put the statue on trial. It's yes. very important yeah. to establish its, its, yes. its skill. But I absolutely take your point, and I'm quite sure that mm -hmm. Jesus of Nazareth and Socrates... Um, Confucius, the Buddha, whoever, were deeply charismatic individuals. And we all know what that is. It's much easier to uh, acknowledge charisma than to define it. But we do know what just that sort of super magnetic presence can, can be like. But I do really wonder whose version we get. Because there's this ancient text by a comic writer called Lucian, which is actually the original text that Monty Python's Life of Brian was based on. Right. Now, very few people know this, but it okay. does exist. It's about a charlatan who was a, a criminal. He was a murderer, and he'd also got a, a, he was a child molester who had to run away from his town in, 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 in Anatolia. And so he announced, like L. Ron Hubbard, more like, that he was a messiah and he got a new god and he got all these people to follow him 
And he, he, he was actually the son of a Roman soldier. The plot of, you know, those Monty Python guys had studied this at Cambridge. They must have done. Um, so we've actually got a, a, this is Lucian's take on Jesus of Nazareth. And that he actually got people saying, throw me to the lions and stuff. He got, he got these sort of crazy acolytes, right? So it's, 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 it's a parody on ancient mystery cults, but how a magnetic personality can get everybody to do that. So we really don't know the actual truth about any of these characters, sadly. We've only got, in all, all of their cases, their devoted disciples accounts. So I'd quite like to hear what some of the elders of the Jewish church in Jerusalem really thought of Jesus of Nazareth, you know? It might be very different. History is written by the victors. Yes, the ideological victors. Well, on that note, I'm afraid we are out of time. We're going to have to finish. Uh, Just remains to thank our panel and thank you, our audience, for an excellent discussion. Thank you very much. (laughs)